Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Glenn David Gold, whose latest book is I Will Be Complete. It's a memoir. Glenn David Gold has written two novels, Sunnyside and Carter Beats the Devil. This particular memoir is getting some great reviews. Before we went on the air, I began figuring out what is it about this book, and then I realized that it reads like a novel. When I compare it to other books, I'm not comparing it to memoir. I'm comparing it to novels. Your response at that point was, well, that was intentional. Yes, I worry about that a little bit because I want to make sure that you feel it's like a novel, except for the parts where stuff was made up. When I launched into this, I tried to do it as a journalist, as sort of a floating eye over everything. And it became apparent that wasn't going to work because readers want to actually feel what the narrator is feeling. And unlike a journalist, a novelist has to put their thumb on the scale sometimes. And so when I was doing, you know, third or fourth or fifth or sixth draft, whatever it was, it occurred to me I had to be character. And if I was a character, I knew how to put characters through their paces. There was a draft I took and I gave it to my agent who hated it. I couldn't figure out what the problem with it was. And I started doing uh, stand-up, basically. I'd go to a, one of those readings where it'd just be like five minutes, you, you sign up for it. And I'd go to Pints and Prose or to uh, uh, Why There Are Words Here. And I would write in the afternoon and I would try to write something. And it kept on coming to me that I was creating character and character conflict resolution I know how to do. And that became more of a comfortable thing to do when I when I had like the whole structure of the book laid out. I could apply those novelistic rules to it. And thanks for noticing. The novelist Mark Childress said that one of the things, one of the aspects of the book is that you were willing to be a jerk. Mm. And it occurred to me in terms of this that the moment that you set it up as fiction and go, okay, this isn't me, this is a character that frees you to make the character a jerk. <laughs> That's true. I was also intrigued by the Melrose books because I know that Edward St. Aubin was making up a character and also was very overt with, it was based on personal, but in order to tell the story, when he could project everything onto Patrick Melrose, he could be more truthful. So I listened to those interviews and I thought, well, what if you could project it onto a character, but it was not a character. It actually is your own traits. I didn't make up anything about myself. I just was looking at my old journals and I tried to judge that kid who was, you know, 19 or 27 and try to figure out what qualities I was actually presenting to the world and then fill in the rest that was actually there, but to just to hold myself accountable for the decisions I actually made. Paul Theroux writes novels where the main character is named Paul Theroux and <laughs> goes through various paces. And it's clearly Paul writing, if this were happening, this would be what I would do. David Henry Huang writes plays in which the main character is named David Henry Huang. And again, fiction. Yeah. So by saying I'm, this is a book where the character is 
Glenn David Gold, in some respects, you're doing the same thing, except you're dealing with facts. Right. Yeah. And in, and also, I have a track record of writing a terrible novel with a narrator named Glenn David Gold. Because there is no God, this will never come out. My first novel was called The Clown Joke, about dead clowns washing up on a beach. It was really clever. It was terrible. I wrote another novel, and then I wrote a third novel that I uh, I <laughs> called My Dead Mom about a character named Glenn David Gold, whose mother is dead, and he's a bad writer. It was, again, clever and cloying and no good. And so that set me away from doing anything with a character named Glenn for a very long time. But, you know, what I just want to emphasize again is that the person in this book is me. I mean, it's pretty transparently me. Are all the names real? Have you changed the names? Changed names. A lot of them. Your family names are real? A lot of the family names are real, yeah. Was the character named in real life, Peter Charming? No, no. But he had a name that was equally ridiculous. In fact, maybe even more so. And it took me a while to come up with something that was the equivalent. The address on Rose, I haven't looked it up. Is that real? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Being in Berkeley at the time mm -hmm. and being at that point in the 80s, the editor of the KPFA Folio Program Guide, uh -huh. it occurred to me that more than likely, because there were so many people living in there, one of my magazines probably found its way into that house. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. There's, yeah, I'm sure that, well, we, we sure have some overlap. Did you, did you ever go to Upstart Crow uh, back when that was uh, in Berkeley Square? It was the cafe and bookstore that was there yeah. together. Yeah. Sure. yeah. I used to hang out a lot of rainy evenings there trying to, you know, flirt with the people who were uh, working behind the counter, but, but they had better things to do. There were a whole bunch of bookstores, and you worked at one of the worst, on the one on campus. <laughs> I did, yeah. Not the one people would think of, which was the textbook place. I worked above it in the general books section, which didn't even really have a name except general books. And so many people thought we were the textbooks place. There was like, you know, a Q&A at the register. Textbooks are downstairs. And in fact, I, I had a coworker who once wore a hat. And it was just like a chef's toque hat. And it just said, textbooks are downstairs. And people would come up and ask him where the textbooks were anyway. Of course. Yeah, no, nobody wanted to be in that store. It was, it was a pretty bad store at the time. Glenn David Gold, let's talk a little about why this memoir exists. Both books got good reviews, but still kind of not famous. Mm -hmm. There's nobody famous in the book. When I spoke with you about Sunnyside... I said, what are you working on? And you said a memoir. And I think probably my eyebrow went up a little bit <laughs> at the time, and I didn't say anything. How far back does the idea of this particular memoir go? Does it go all the way back to those original few pages that Alice Siebold found in the garbage? Oh, far beyond that. I mean, it goes to consciousness. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be clever or anything when I say it, but really I think that my identity as a writer is tied in with wanting to set the record straight about how my life was lived. There was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of conflicting stories. And my urge to set the record straight, I think, began – I think that, that came hand in hand with my trying to hone my skills as a writer and as a novelist. So I'm going to say – you know, even as it was happening, even when I was like 12 and stuff, I think I got to learn how to tell this story. So even when your mother abandoned you in San Francisco for a few weeks? Yeah. Well, so it's funny. I, I, I hear that word abandoned all the time, and I keep thinking it's a little more nuanced than that. My mom got a better offer, and she took it, and then she always she intended to come back. I don't think it's like she figured I was just going to grow up on my own after that, but no. Yeah, even as that was happening, I was thinking there's there's a Robinson Crusoe story in here somehow. 
But you just didn't know how or where or what. No, I was too busy trying to figure out what the next issue of the Avengers would look like and writing those sorts of stories first. The origins of Carter Beats the Devil also go back there on some level. Magicians, is that correct? Well, I was never a fan of magic, and I think that might have been one of the reasons I could write about it, is I was a little dispassionate. You know how writers don't want to ever go into therapy because they're afraid they're going to lose their stories, and they also don't want to write memoirs because they're afraid they're going to lose their stories. I was in therapy, and one of the things I realized in therapy that me living alone for a few weeks at a time in San Francisco actually made a difference in my life. It wasn't just a funny story, but it changed who I was as a person. So when I was writing Carter, I had Carter and his brother left alone in a house in San Francisco for a number of days at a time to sort of process out my own feelings about it. And people responded very, very generously with that. They felt that it was a real thing. It gave them a grounding and a character. And I feel like that was an early version of memoir for me by doing it through historical fiction, change all the facts, but keep all the emotional content. I think you say this in an interview you gave Knopf. A lot of people will save all of it for fiction, but you decided not to. Yeah, well, I couldn't. I would say that probably nothing happens in this book that you would believe in a novel. I mean, it's very little. And I tried frequently. You know, I, I tried to tell the story of how my parents did things, and I would hear comments from teachers of no parents would ever behave that way. Part of that was my own inabilities and my own lack of skill at the time. But part of it was also both of my parents are very unusual people and they had their own priorities that um, might not necessarily be what most parents had. Jumping ahead a little bit, are you in contact with your mother at all now? Not at all. No idea where she is. Well, listen, this is, you know, this is one of those things I don't mean to be coy, but it goes past the end of the book. You know, I mean, where the book ends, sure, we had more contact after that. and It was complicated. But I got to the point where, where I ended it because as I was wrapping it up, as I got to there, I thought, OK, if this was, you know, applying those rules of structure to it, it felt like a place where I'd had enough of a revelation that it felt like the ending of the story. And, you know, stuff that happens after that, it's still more the same. Except for the fact that you've written a book and if you're not in contact with your mother, you have no idea how she might or might not respond. That's true. And it's not my responsibility, but I also feel I don't want to hurt her. I don't want to do anything that hurts her. And I can't project what her reaction would or wouldn't be. But really, I don't want to. This is, you know, about finding a kind of distance from it. And your dad, I assume he's proud of the, the book that it exists. But if I were him, I wouldn't read it. My dad read it and he said he felt he came across as a benign putz. I said to him, Dad, you're not benign, but, you know, he's fine with it. I spent a lot of my time monitoring my responses to be a good son. And I felt that what happens if you lift that off your own shoulders and just instead responsibility to a story. It's not perfect in my head. I don't have anything like, you know, I'm not out there bulletproof and resolved about it. I ask myself a lot of questions about it all the time. It's not something I feel cold about. But what I really do feel, and I don't, I don't think this is just bravado, but yeah, I don't want to hurt anybody who's in the book. And on the other hand, what happens when I tell this story over and over and over again, people come up and say, I'm not alone. You know, I had that happen too. I had something like that. And I now have more compassion for the people in my lives that that happened with. I mean, I'm hoping that as you read the book, you don't feel like I'm sitting there and judging my mom for things that she did so much as, 
or like, you know, condemning her for it so much as like assessing it and saying, you know, these are all the aspects of this personality and whatever decision she made, they weren't malicious. It's just something that she did. Her decision struck me. Now, obviously I'm reading your book, but I'm going to have different perceptions. It struck me that in the end, and maybe this is wrong, it felt as if all of her decisions, which to you as a kid, which meant being with some very bad people, doing some very strange things, they seem more reactive than active. I mean, from your perspective, it looked like she was running off and doing this, but it was always somebody saying, come to me, someone saying, I want this, someone saying, I don't want this. And at my end, I see the people around her. Maybe this is just my projection. And she's just responding. Does that make any sense? Huh. That's interesting. Well, I hadn't ever thought of it that way because I feel like there's ways in which somebody can seem buffeted about by currents that they can't control. But at a certain point, there is a matter of choice built into it. And I find that kind of a sticky thing. It's like, what are your personal limits and what are the choices you're making? To give people an idea if they haven't read the book, and one thing we can talk about is because it's a memoir, there are no secrets. There might be some at the end which we wouldn't talk about, but it's not like we're giving a plot away mm -hmm. to say that Glenn David Gold's mother and father were divorced after a very early childhood in what appeared to be wealth, and you went off with your mother, and she had a lot of boyfriends and wound up getting into trouble, leaving you for other people, leaving you alone. And whenever you saw her, she wanted something, frequently money. And this was all through your life. Is that pretty much? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm nodding my head a lot as I hear that description of it. And I'm thinking, but, 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 asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. And part of that is just me as, as the son, just saying, wanting to defend different things. And part of it is also... There are a lot of nuances to it. So, you know, what's an example? You know, being put with a lot of bad people. Well, I was put with a lot of good people, too. So I grew up in San Francisco, you know, in, in the mid-70s. So we had an artist living in our basement. And where did he come from? I'm not really sure. He just sort of showed up at a party. He didn't leave. And he was a genuinely nice guy. He just got high and made paintings in the basement. And he taught me more about art than I would have learned if I had had a more structured, you know, who is this guy living here? He was benign. He was a genuine benign putz. Yeah, I got put into danger and I completely agree with that because at, at the same time, as another story I tell him there. I showed up at the airport one day and my mom wasn't there. I was coming back from visiting my dad and I went, got landed at SFO and the, uh, the flight attendant who was there was a flight attendant who had been there several times when my mother hadn't shown up for different reasons. This time my mom hadn't shown up because she had to replace all the furniture in my room because somebody who had come over had OD'd uh, in there and had sprayed blood everywhere. And so everything had to be <laughs> taken care of. And as she said, I don't understand it. He said he was the heir to the Coca-Cola fortune. There's such a moment of cognitive dissonance I had that even though I was, what, 11 or 12 when I heard that, I have never forgotten the position I was in, where I was, the smell of the bleach in my room and everything like that. And it was one of those, you know, Stephen Dedalus, see this, remember sort of moments <laughs> in the library. You were talking about my mother being reactive to things right. and making choices like this. Yeah. Well, she invited people into the house who were crazy, you know, and 
sometimes it was good crazy. You know, there were plenty of times where there were great dinner parties where nothing awful happened, where there was the sparkling wit and conversation. And then every once in a while, there'd be some horrific thing that happened. But she did not have a great filter. And sometimes bad things happened. There's some stuff that's left out, mostly between the different sections. Mm -hmm. So uh, you don't go into at all most of your years in high school. Were they just because they're just Glenn hanging out in high school? Thank you for asking that question. Originally, it was seven volumes, not three. I feel like Thatcher changed me. It was one of the best educational experiences I ever had. I definitely went and found myself a new family there. But when I sat down and wrote it, I started working on it. They're boarding school stories. You know, they're, they're good entertainment. I mean, I imagine three or four page sections of it will be interesting at some point. But as far as it being worthy of its own thing, I don't know how to do that story yet. And the same thing with going to UC Irvine. I, uh, I felt like that was also a transformative experience in addition to becoming a writer, becoming a different sort of human being and things. And that also was like, okay, that's a different project. And as the other things fell away, these were the, the stories that struck me as being central. Elied, I guess is a good word, <laughs> through your 20s. Yeah. You go from 20, then you're sort of 23, then you're sort of 27, then you're sort of back to 23. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of other things that happen. You were a graduate student for many years. Yeah, I was many, many. <laughs> well, part of that was I went through a clinical depression when I was writing Carter Beats the Devil. Yeah, I didn't talk about that much when that came out. But I, I, uh, I so I was in graduate school and I, I, I had wonderful workshops. It was one of those experiences that, you know, people throwing confetti in the air at me, I felt, except for one thing. They'd say, hey, great plot, really fun can't really feel how Carter's feeling inside. Just do a little bit of work on how Carter feels inside and everything will be fine. So I'd work extra hard on that. And then the next time we feel it even less what he's feeling inside. And then I, I realized, oh, I don't know how I feel inside. And that's why I can't do a character with layers in it because all of my layers are, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I had to figure out how to get through that. So I, I one of the things, I was in therapy. I, uh, I quit writing for 18 months. I thought about getting a real estate license. I did temp work. And the therapy was, yes, about my relationship with my mom and understanding that it wasn't just stories, that things like having, you know, a junkie ODing in my bedroom is not just like, hey, I can top that one. It's more like, oh, that actually had an impact on my feelings of safety and trauma and understanding that my mom was not altogether going to make the best decisions about things. <laughs> Once I've kind of put together in my head that, no, this had an effect on me, then I could start writing again because the, the thing that just flayed me was, oh, I took up writing because it's a pathology. It's a way of setting the record straight and it's a reaction to trauma. So what am I doing with it? I should let that go. And then I found out, well, it might be a reaction to trauma, but it's also pretty useful. And it turns out to be a good tool. There's no question that I Will Be Complete has a great deal more emotional depth. I mean, the other books are well-written, but this one is the one that goes deepest, obviously. I agree. Well, you say obviously, but thanks. I'm glad to hear that because that's one of the things Mark Childress, who, who blurbed the book and said very nice things about it. We also exchanged some texts. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it, but one of the things he said he liked about this is that most memoirs by straight men are stuff I did and why I was right about it. And this is very much more about parsing every little nuance of that I'm fine. What is I'm fine made up of? Well, you know, you're deflecting against this feeling and pushing this back and actually anger about this and tunneling underneath all of it. You know, what I'm actually thinking is, you know, will a woman ever love me? One of the elements of the second part 
of the book, which deals with mostly with relationships, particularly with a woman named Melanie and then Lindsay. Uh, what I noticed is that even when you're dealing with your girlfriends at the time, there is a subtext of your mother, which I kept going, why is this there? And then I realized at the end of the book what you were doing, uh, that you were ensuring at various times that we never forgot her because you never did. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very true. And it was an issue for me when I was writing it, especially the second volume, because my mother was largely absent. And it became an issue of what my friend Ben Acker calls talking about the thing by not talking about the thing. And I didn't know whether it would work or not, because my mother's off stage for most of the second volume. However, when people were reading, it's like, wow, she's on every page anyway. <laughs> and that makes some sense to me. The girlfriends, particularly Melanie and Lindsay, are you in contact with both of them? Yeah, with Melanie, not so much with Lindsay. Yeah. And you don't know if she's read the book. Is that her name? It's changed. Melanie's real, yeah. And she's, she's read it, and she highly approves and feels that I got it right, which is really nice to hear, because I was 19 when I knew her. And I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I... I was a 19-year-old guy, so basically there was, a, there was not a lot of depth there, and she was quite kind to me to pay attention to me, and that I seem to have learned something from her is a little miraculous. She was about seven years older. That was an astonishing seven years. That's a whole like, quarter of her life. It was like a third of mine. That was uh, nuts, yeah. And that's when you were at the bookstore, Hunter's Bookstore. Hunter's Books in Westwood, California, on Westwood and Weyburn, yeah. Is that anywhere near the uh, famous cemetery? The one where Marilyn Monroe is? Oh, actually, it is. I didn't even know that until recently, though, because there's like a bank of movie theaters in front of it, and you have to drive through this parking lot to get in there. Yeah, it's within walking distance, but I had no idea. You left out four sections. What were those sections? One of them you said was about graduate school. One was about high school. What were the other two sections? Male friendship was one. I was interested in that because I realized that, you know, my relationships with women is just part of the equation of what happens after growing up in my childhood. It's also how I dealt with guys as well. In between the part where Lindsay and I broke up and where I took up with Darcy, there's like a six month fade out. I don't say anything about it. And that's actually its whole own unit in there as I had got a vintage motorcycle and went out trying to break hearts in between like bursting into tears all the time. It was a, it was a, it was a disastrous part of my life. But it's a funny story and it's it's dark and it has its merits, but it wasn't good enough. It, it, it didn't fit in with the rest of the narrative. And I, I feel like it was uh, it, it's something that could sit comfortably outside of uh, what I was talking about. And then I also, let me just give you this example. Um, my friend Owen, who's in the second volume, Owen and I met in high school and uh, he took me to my first punk rock show, The Dead Kennedys in Wilmington in 1983. And originally I followed Owen more with what happened to him in his summer because I was thinking if I'm the protagonist of my story, what's happening with Owen? Well, the end of that summer with Owen, he was up with his family uh, in Markleyville and uh, there was a crash outside and it was a car had come off the road above them, landed behind the house. It was upside down on fire and he dragged people out of the flaming car and his stepfather was in the habit every day of asking, you know, what did you do to make the world a better place today? And this is stepfather who was this mean drunk who had this unfinished novel and was a jerk to everybody. And I was thinking, Owen has finally done something that's made the world a better place in a way that just writing a novel is never going to do. 
Owen fell into some intense relationships with women at the same time I did. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting sort of, you know, following what it's like for other people besides myself. But it ended up being way too expansive. It's a subplot that could be removed. Yeah. But would be restored for the miniseries. And it's the part where they'd say, wow, this is like a Marvel superhero show. It's just <laughs> such padding, you know. Couldn't you do it in six episodes instead of 13? Yeah. One of the more interesting characters is your mother's boyfriend in part three, Daniel. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he's interesting is because I've never run across somebody that awful, I might call him, in fiction, but I have known or met two or three people exactly like that. Just to set this up a little bit, I mean, when I was about 22, I met a woman I thought I was going to marry. And roughly the same week, my mom met a guy who was her, her everything. And he was a crystal meth addict and illiterate and mean and nasty. And she loved him as deeply as anybody has ever loved anybody. It was infuriating to me. But to be able to even say it was infuriating took me 10 years because I just had to be you know, I was tamped down about it, but it drove me nuts on a lot of different levels because my mother is so intelligent and sensitive and interesting. And she had chosen this person who was objectively a terror. It was very difficult to, to go through. I kept waiting for the moment and I was quite certain he was going to beat her to death one day. And so I did become really cold about that because there's no way to anticipate for it. I put my mom up for a month uh, in my house to try to get her back on her feet at one point when she'd fled him. And then she ended up going back to him the way that it works that way. He was a hard person to write because he made me so angry. And so eventually I just had to account for it in the writing. I just had to admit, yeah, I really was angry at that point because for obvious reasons, I think. When you did the interview with Knopf, you mentioned that you couldn't get there until you found the voice. What exactly, I mean, we're circling back to what we yeah. talked about before, what exactly did that mean in terms of finding the voice that would allow you to get this all out, including, as it turns out, from my perspective at least, when you're talking about Daniel, you're being fairly objective even when you say, I hated him. That part of the story was one of the first things I wrote, actually. I wrote that in Jeffrey Wolf's class uh, at UCI. And so I had his eye when I was doing drafts. And one of the things he said, I want to make sure I get this right. He said, a memoir's job is to indict and exonerate. And so you account for somebody's failings and for somebody's successes and you let them go. It's like a catch and release. It's the vengeance is mine memoir is no good. And there's a lot of those. And so what, what Jeffrey never really got into, I mean, he got into it a little bit, but he, but, but I think that what the message for a writer is you have to do the same thing with yourself first and your own emotions about it and cop to them and admit to them. And for myself, that took a while because I was just, I'm fine about this fact that this guy is, could kill my mother at any moment. Because I was you know, clearly a defense mechanism. And then to actually admit to it would mean I was admitting to having emotions, which also sucked because it meant that things affected me the way they affected other people. Oh, hey, this being audio, we can do something here that I can't do in any other way. Right? Okay. So when I'm eight years old, that sound. So when I was eight years old, uh, my cousin slammed my hand in a car door accidentally. 
and we had to go to the emergency room and it was like swollen up like there's an apple in my hand and they were going to do an x-ray in my hand and I was terrified. And the reason why was not because of the x-ray. I thought that if you look inside my hand, you'd find something that wasn't supposed to be there because to me, I was different than everybody else on every level. And my preciousness about my differenceness was, you know, I, I was, I was unlike any other kid. And then when I looked at the x-ray, it's like, no, there are bones in my hand. To know that there's bones in my hand is the same thing as going, no, I have emotions. The same things happen to me that happen to other people. I share these processes with other people. I ain't that special, which is like a huge relief. And, and to know that I have things in common. And so with things like how I reacted to Daniel at the time, people would say, oh, you, God, you just seem so okay with this. Yeah, of course I'm okay with this. You know, that was like a point of pride. So to let go of that pride was part of the process of writing about it. And also to acknowledge your behaviors at various times weren't exemplary too. No. That's a big one in that if you're writing fiction, you don't you don't have to do that. You don't have to put yourself out there like that. Oh, you would ask me about finding the voice. And yeah. one of the things for finding the voice was I would write small sections that felt right. And then I'd ask myself why they felt right. And then also, you know, I'd audition them in front of an audience and see how they reacted to it. Right. And But the other part was this, the author's note on the accuracy of the text. I say in the very beginning, my mother assures me none of this happened. It's funny. But it's also like to me, I thought everything that I write has to measure up to that because there's a level of compassion in it as well. And there's a level of, okay, other people are going to see it differently, but this is the story as I'm going to tell it. And so I had that, that note in the back of my head when I was writing. But the other thing is the very beginning of the third volume, I put in a journal entry, which is 1980 something or other. My mom called to ask to borrow $2. I told her no. And I put no other context in there because that reading that I was realizing you pull that out of a journal and you put that there. That's crazy. Like what, what, how did things get to be like that? Because, you know, that's a complete asshole move to do to your own mom, not to give her $2. And then also why was she calling to borrow $2? So to me, I felt like I have to be true to the person who said no and account for that and say, you know, if I seem like a dick because I did that, I have to say, well, this is why I did it. Well, at the same time, when things build up with any relationships, little things suddenly taken out of context look weird. Yeah. But in a larger context, they don't look weird. By the end of it, if your mother called you, you'd be going, okay, what now? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. That's what a lot of it was. Yeah. And also this... A couple of, I won't say where they appeared, but a, a couple of early reviews have this kind of shaming component toward my mother's decisions and stuff. And the thing, she never did anything out of malice. I mean, she is a very nice woman and she's not malicious and she's loving. It's just that the effect of all that is alienating and bizarre and uh, dark. There's also the feeling, particularly, and it comes up when she was living with you, mm -hmm. that no matter what she did, Things from outside would break it every single time. It wasn't, I did something. It was, this happened, then that happened, then this happened, then that happened. To a point where you're going, either 
something is missing here or she has the worst karma on the entire planet. Welcome to my 20s. I mean, I had to weigh that all the time. You know, early on, you know, my dad was like, she's doing this to herself. She's doing this to herself. And my response is, oh, yeah, you divorced her. You know, <laughs> this is your view of her. And you are kicking her when she's down by, you know, saying she's a black widow or whatever. Is like, that's not the person I know. The person I know has the worst karma on earth. And that's why I kept retelling the stories to girlfriends and to friends at parties. Stuff you'll never believe this terrible. I can't believe this awful thing that just happened to my mom again. And the thing is, yeah, those things happen. But in order to get to that place, she had to put herself there. This is one of those places where I have to leave it open to interpretation a little more because my own feeling at the time was, wow, this terrible things keep happening to you. I have no idea why that is. And then later, as an, as more of an adult, I look at it and go, well, she put herself there. Obviously, I'm projecting something somewhere, but we've all had friends whose lives fit that pattern. And after a while, you go, how can I help them? Right. Because they put themselves there. Yeah. Well, then this is where I will be complete comes in. There's like <laughs> that kind of question of like, is there ever happiness for some people? You know, I, I got really messed up as a kid by reading Robert Heinlein's definition of love, which is love is when another person's happiness is essential to your own. That's awful. I know. Right. And so what happens when when there's somebody who is perpetually, you know, on the edge of a cliff like yours, you know, her boat is just about to go over the falls at any moment. And you do everything you can to like help the boat, you know, change the direction of the falls and stuff. And it's still this perpetual thing. How do you react to that? And the, the answer is, you know, stop being so codependent. The boat is going over the falls. Mm -hmm. So you stop the boat from going over the falls and then the rudder falls off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good description of it. Yeah. Now the book's out. What did you leave out that you thought should be in there? The disappointing answer to that is there were a lot of things that were important to me, my development that really messed with my head that I put in there that, you know, my editors were like, you know, it's like, that's interesting to you, but it's like, we already know how this goes. Like the breakup with Lindsay and stuff that to me was like a 50 page thing. I'm like, just two pages is enough. We get it, you know? So you write Carter and then you write Sunnyside. At that point, the idea of writing a memoir, which you said you were writing, but at that point, you had to be thinking, I don't know what will happen with this. Were you thinking about other novels? I mean, where did that go? Yeah, I wrote uh, the first two chapters of a pretty good post-apocalyptic Watership Down novel, but I couldn't think of chapter three. It stalled me out. I uh, wrote a play. I uh, wrote a few screenplays. I had an idea for a TV show. Another novel, wrote some short stories. And then also I had like five or six, I had five or six essays that were personal that I was sort of hoping to just like do as a book so I wouldn't have to do any work. But it turned out that they also were devoid of that voice that I was talking about. I just was not much of a character in them. So it took me nine years to write this memoir, but the first five of them were putzing around with other, uh, I'm using this word putz a lot, but I was putzing around for uh, with other projects for a while until this caught fire. And when it caught fire and you told your agent, what did your agent say? Okay. So I turned in The Last Kings of San Francisco, the first third of it, and I handed it over and she called me back and she said, all right, get a pen. And I took, she, I took 45 minutes of notes and she said, do you have any questions? And I said, yeah, uh, did you like anything? And she said, honey, don't ever change your font. Her name is Susan Gollum. If you want to send her your manuscript, uh, understand she tells it like it is. She's a great agent. This is the thing. She was 100% right. I had gotten nothing right in it. 
I told the wrong stories. I was really caught up in family mythology in a way that didn't, you know, I was not telling the truth. I was printing the legend in a lot of ways. I wasn't actually getting to the heart of things. And she was right. It was just, it was, it was DOA. And so uh, it was depressing, but, and I was mad, but I couldn't be that mad because she was right. So you went back and at this point you realize this is the only thing you can write? No, I also had another novel I was working on that I like very much and I might go back to it. But I'm one of those weird guys that if you tell me something is impossible, I double down on it, you know, and I kept hearing that telling the story might be impossible. And so I was like, oh, I just I got to give it another shot. So I tried another couple drafts, made it a little bit better, did the thing of doing this, the stand up. And then it started to become more apparent to me. When I did a I did a lecture up at Squaw Valley, the writers conference there, about memoir, and at the time it was for me it was going to be a it was going to be an autopsy. It was like this is why the memoir didn't work. But by the time I ended up giving that speech, people's responses to the samples there was actual weeping in the audience when they heard some of the stories I was telling, and people you know lining up to <coughs> hug me, and I felt that that those other people out there it was giving them something, and it's not just about massaging my own ego but it's also there's something there's there's something out there there's this community of people who have had to twist themselves to deal with difficult parents and i thought well this is worth it and what happened when you finally finished it and sent it off to knopf they said great it was a process because i have a great editor there diana miller she's fantastic and she's very empathic and understood how to make it better. Yeah, she really liked it. And she encouraged she encouraged a lot of the aspects about the, my development as a writer, which was shocking to me because I thought that was not that important. But she made me kind of go into that deeper. She also, uh, <laughs> she also cut out a lot of the women stuff. It was almost a hashtag, but not part, part but she'd just write in the margin, man pride. I think, yeah, okay, I can cop to that man pride. But they're very enthusiastic about it. Well, one of the things Diana let me do is she she got me the, this cover of the book, which is uh, five stars. I mean, it's – and we went through nine versions of it. I mean, there were nine different covers, I, I think, something like that, and uh, ended up with this amazing thing. And they're happy with it, yeah. And I Will Be Complete just came to you and you said, I'm going to use it. Weirdly, yeah. It's that boring thing. I was walking up the stairs. I didn't have a title to the bottom of the stairs. By the time I got to the top, there it was. And – Oh, well, this is another thing that's bizarre to me. As I was looking through my journals when I was 19, I had written that phrase on a piece of paper when I was 19. And you know, I tried to incorporate that in the book, but it didn't work. It felt to me like a title. Some people react to it as being very pessimistic, and some people find it very hopeful. And I was like, great, you're right. Glenn David Gold, okay, this book is out. You're going to go back to that last novel then, or what? It's interesting. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I also have some ideas for another historical piece. Well, I'm living down in, in LA, so if you happen to be a, uh, have a writer's room with a TV show and you need a lot of world building, I'm available for hire. This is the way they do it, right? I mean, this is that. This is that. This is, this is the, hear the podcast. This is the LinkedIn of, uh, <laughs> of how you get into that, right? How about a second volume? Oh, volume, like volumes, like what happens in four through six? Yeah. I don't think so. I'm 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 pretty content with where it's at. I mean, you know, more stuff happened, but I'm not convinced that that's a story that needs to be told. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and the folks at Book Passage Bookstore in Corte Madera, California, where this interview was conducted. 
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 